last few weeks, we've been talking about a part of the Bible called the Beatitudes. And maybe you're familiar with that part of the Bible, but the, the situation is it's a, an area of the Bible where uh, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's a crowds of people who are following Jesus and they're coming, it's Matthew 4 says, from all different areas. They're coming and they're following him and they're approaching Jesus and they're saying to him, can you help me? And they'll look at him and say, can you make my life the way it ought to be? Can you fix things in my life that are hurting? Can you help me? Can you do that, Jesus? And Matthew 5 says that Jesus saw the crowds. And when he saw them, verse 2 says, he began to speak. And he says all these things and over and over again. All of the lines that he's saying at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 are marked by this word, blessed. And the word blessed is found 112 times in the New Testament. I looked it up. I didn't count. I, I Googled it, okay? 112 times in the New Testament, this word blessed is there. And the interesting thing about this word is all 112 times, not once is it used to describe when everything is going your way, when everything is up and to the right, and when you, know, you have it your way and what you want is yours and there's no annoyances in your life. Not one time in the New Testament is the word blessed used like that. Now, it's not bad for us to have good things in our life or to want good conditions or to ask God, could you just for a minute help it go up and to the right? That's not a wrong thing. In fact, James, Jesus's brother, writes in the Bible in James 1.17, he says, every good thing, every good thing that you experience in this life, every perfect gift is from above, from our Father of lights, right? And so all mercies, everyday graces, every little good thing that you have in this broken world comes ultimately because God has given it to you. Oh, what a God we serve. So it's not bad to want good things to happen in our lives, but the way we use the word blessed so often in our lives doesn't quite reflect the way Jesus talks about blessed and being a blessed person and living the blessed life in the Beatitudes. And, and I, I realize the way we use it so often is like, you know, things went my way, so I'm so blessed. You know, look at my Instagram page. Can't you see how blessed I am? And, and what happens is, I said this a couple of weeks ago, a lot of us, we are going through life and we feel so overwhelmed and stuck at times by the troubles of life. And a lot of us, we're carrying around with us like our box of burdens. And, and we're carrying it everywhere we go all day, every day. And we're going through life just normal. And no one really knows what it is, but we know what it is. And we feel weary and heavy laden because everything we're doing, we've got a box of burdens we're lugging around with us. And the invitation of Jesus when we come into this part of the Bible is to come and lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus. To lay them there, and when you set down that burden suddenly, because you've laid them at Jesus' feet, you realize the blessing that he has opened in your life, because he has carried what you cannot carry and experience joy and peace and abundance. But I know this about my life, and I know this is true for some of you too, that we get into this habit where like, maybe it's every Sunday, or maybe it's other times when we just kind of, we can't hold it together anymore. Maybe it's like a weekly habit. I come and I go, oh, it's good to be in this place and with these people and these songs that are being sung, and I sense the presence of God. I've been so distracted all week. It's good to be here. And I go, yes, Lord, I lay my burdens down at the feet of Jesus. And oh, it feels so good to be in this place with you, Lord, and to be with my church. 
But then we re-enter into life and we do the same thing we did before with the same mindset and we just pick up another burden, another box of burdens and we start carrying it with us as we re-enter into life. The same mindset that got us to the place where we were about to collapse, we just pick it right up again and we keep walking with our boxes, lugging them in our strength. And we get into this rotation where we just lay it down and pick it up and lay it down and pick it up again. And I, I, I read a lot, I hear a lot of people out there saying you've got to change your mindset to change your life. And when they say it, a lot of times it's just junk. I mean, it's just like the self-help, power of positivity stuff. You can just feel good and your life will be good. It's ridiculous. It, it absolutely is. But there's a truth that we're to have a changed mindset because we're new creatures in Christ. We have a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling. New affections take hold of our life. We have a new mindset. And I want you to see and understand and embrace that Jesus sees from his vantage point as the ascended and risen Savior of all of his family, the one who can carry the weight of our sin, can be put in the grave and be raised again. From his throne, he looks down and he sees life differently than we see it. Isn't that just natural to consider? Isn't that just logical that he would see things differently than we do from our place of burden? And he looks down and he sees what is truly blessed. And the way he talks about blessing and the way that he talks about the blessed life, not surprisingly, is totally upside down from the way the world sees it. In fact, as he talks about being blessed people, he says things that sound ridiculous to just merely human ears. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake and blessed are those who every day wake up with a kind of longing in their life and a hunger that only God can satisfy and will never be satisfied in anything else in this world. And you begin to see that he's saying blessing doesn't have to do with circumstances and having the annoying things gone and having all the good things only in your life. But it's something much deeper and richer and much more powerful than that. He's talking about an inward transformation that allows you to experience the blessing of God no matter what life hands you, that you might really know what it is to be a child of God, to be a co-heir with Christ and to walk in abundant life. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he gets into the Beatitudes. Do you want to learn more about the blessed life today? No? Okay, we're done. <laughs> Do you want to learn more about... Okay, then would you please open your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're in the third beatitude. The third beatitude is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you hear this? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is very much to be gained for the meek person. And I wonder, I was thinking about this in my own life this week, of people who know me, of people who know you, who really know you, like on your best days and your worst days and everything in between, when they think about your life, would they describe you as being meek? That's a, that's a big question I've had to wrestle with this week. Usually, when I hear someone talk about blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, it always is the same message. And I think it's a good message. It's the same way I've taught it in the past. You, you say blessed are the meek. Well, meek doesn't equal, you finish that? 
Weak, yeah, it rhymes and you like when pastors rhyme. We say meek doesn't equal weak. And it's only really a modern invention that people think of the word as being weak or mild or not able or not capable and they're pressed upon because they have no other choice. But historically and biblically, that's not the definition of the word meek. It's important to understand this, that meek has historically been looked at as power under control. I want to give you a, a picture of what that looks like. There's a story I read this week uh, from the 1930s. It's a true story. And different time, different way the world worked. Uh, sadly, too much of it still marks our world. But, but this was more common even then where in Detroit, three young white men got on a bus, and as they got on a bus, they looked at the back and they saw a young man sitting on the back alone, and they began to throw insults at him simply because of the color of his skin. And that guy, he didn't rise up, he didn't say anything back in the moment, he didn't give him a dirty look, you know, he didn't give him some sign language, <laughs> he just sat there, and so what did they do? They turned up the heat of their insults, and they just, I mean, they're railing at this guy, they're just bagging on him for the whole ride, but when the bus stopped and it was his stop, the guy gets up off the back seat and he goes to walk past these guys. They're like gearing up, like, what's he going to do? Are you ready for this? Let's get, you know. But our guy from the back, he gets up and as he walks by, he doesn't start throwing insults back. He doesn't let him know what he's really thinking. He doesn't slug him, which is, you know, maybe what I would want to do in the moment. But he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a business card and he hands it to them. And then he quietly exits the bus and gets off. It was his stop. And these guys are kind of laughing, like, what, a, what an idiot, what a fool. And they look down at his card, and they huddle around, and this is what's on his card. Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> Number one, awesome business card. <laughs> like, I want a card that awesome. Joe Lewis, boxer. You don't need to know anything else. But number two, these guys have been bagging on the world heavyweight champion of boxing, who... 25 times defended his title. Like he's known to be one of the most powerful and skilled boxers of all time. This guy could have destroyed them in one hit. Sometimes, I don't know if you ever get in this loop, I'll, I'll watch videos of people getting punched by boxers. It's pastime, everybody has to have a hobby, you know? You have to have a hobby, but you think about it, like you watch basketball and you go, oh, those guys aren't that good, and then you see them up close. These boxers, it's like, yeah, I think I could take a hit from a boxer. And then you watch it like a normal person, and you go, no. This guy could destroy them, and yet he put aside ego, he set aside status, he set aside rights, and he set aside destructive power that would have, I mean, absolutely obliterated these guys. And that is a picture of meekness. Meek doesn't equal weak. Historically, it's power under control. It's restraint, and it takes power in order to be meek. I love this. A, a fourth century Christian uh, described meekness as this. It's a person who's not being led by impulses in human nature to lash out at others and to react to situations in ways that are sinful. It's power being reined in under God's leadership. And Joe Lewis is a you know, good example kind of in a way, but who is a greater example of power under control than Jesus of Nazareth? Amen. Like, Jesus, the very son of God, who held more power, who's walked the face of this earth than Jesus? No one. 
And Jesus demonstrated his power in so many ways. He demonstrated his power over nature because he could calm a storm that had all of his friends, you know, on their, you know, on their knees in fear, like, we're going to die. And he just like, speaks up. And it's not a sweat. It's not an effort. Jesus just goes, shh, stop it. The one who created the oceans can just go, shh, stop it. And everything stops. You know, he, he showed his power over evil and that he would walk up to a person and he would cast out a demon. Like he would show up and demons would flee from the presence of Jesus. That's the power of Jesus. He showed his power over death in raising Lazarus who had been laying in the grave for a couple of days. And Jesus walks up and says, is everyone sure he's dead? I go, yeah, we're sure he's been dead for a while. He hadn't breath, you know, breathed and we've been checking his pulse. Jesus goes, okay, just as long as you're sure, get up. And Lazarus gets up and just embraces Jesus. He showed his power over death when he allowed himself to be put on a cross, buried in a tomb, and three days later, he got out of the grave. And he said, I'm here for all who would come with me to raise you up as well. I, I, there's no power like the power of Jesus. Jesus is God. He's eternal God Almighty. I want you to hear about the power of Jesus from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10 verse 12 says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding. He stretched out the heavens. There's no power like the power of our God. Jeremiah 32 verse 17, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Love this line. Nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to the thousands. Nothing is too hard for our God. And that's one of the reasons we so badly want you to find and follow Jesus is because for all the things that you're carrying in your life, nothing is too hard for Jesus to take that burden from you. Nothing is too hard for him. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars and gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Matthew 28, this is after the resurrection. He called the disciples to himself. It's before the ascension. And he says, all authority, other translations say, all power has been given to me on heaven and on earth. How much power? All of it, right? All power has been given to me. And yet, how does Jesus describe himself when he opens up his heart and says, this is what I'm really like if you want to know. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. And the word gentle there is the same word in Matthew 5, 5. It's the word meek. All of this power is so under control and used only for holiness and for goodness, for beauty and for creating, not for destroying, right? So come into me, Jesus says. Receive my peace, for I am meek. Meek doesn't equal weak. Meek is power under control. And the word meek is used all throughout the New Testament. The same word from Matthew 5 is just scattered all throughout the letters of the New Testament written to the church about how we're to embody the meekness of Jesus in our lives, how it's not me, but it's Christ in me who's carrying me into community and into the situations and contexts we find ourselves in. You find Ephesians 4, it says, you, church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ with all meekness or gentleness, showing toleration for one another in love. In other words, many lesson, meekness requires that we keep short accounts with one another. Does that make sense? 
Meekness requires that we keep short accounts with one another because there is something binding us together that is so much more powerful than anything that seeks to divide us in Christ. You go to like 2 Timothy and there's this passage about Christian leadership and what does it look like? And it says, don't be quarrelsome. Don't get into ridiculous fights over things that would seek to divide us. But instead, God's bondservant must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and meek or gentle with others. And that our manner of meekness might even open the door. Who knows? Maybe God will turn someone around because you've carried the meekness and the kindness of Christ to them rather than fighting like a fool. Isn't that awesome mini lesson, Christian leaders, this is the way we lead. We lead in meekness, not in dominance, not in because I have the right or because I have the knowledge or because I have the power. Because I've been given the power of Christ in me, I come with gentleness and with kindness. I think about another passage in Galatians 5, really important. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And guess what? It's the same word as Matthew 5, 5. It's meek. Gentleness and self-control. Many lesson, I can't be meek, but the Holy Spirit can bear meekness in my life when I give him control over my life. Do you get that? Right? Does not equal weak. Meekness is power under control. And, and I, I want you to see that this morning and understand that. Now, I also want you to understand one of the biggest mistakes that I make and that Christians make when we come to the Bible when we come to the Beatitudes, when we come to the Ten Commandments, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, when we come to the Bible, a lot of times we'll use it as a ladder, not a mirror. Can we make sense of that? We'll use it as a ladder trying to climb to God's grace and to his favor and to his blessing. And maybe if I can first rung poor in spirit, then I can second rung, I can mourn, and third rung, then I can be meek. And before you know it, I earn blessing, which is moralism, and that's heresy. That's not the gospel. Instead, we're to use these passages as a mirror that we look into to see what is really here and to be reminded of how badly we need God and how badly we need his mercy and grace. And the problem, the reason we bring that mindset into it is because we're so often focused on doing, not becoming, doing, not being. And it's not a task to accomplish being meek. It's not like, okay, check it off the list. I'm gonna get meekness down and master that this week. Jesus didn't say, you know, I can act meek at times. I choose to sometimes be meek. He says, I am meek. That's just who I am. And it's about personhood. It's about the character that's being cultivated in us when we're called to meekness, not about having a list of things to do to earn God's favor. And so I was thinking about that this week and how so often when I look at this uh, one beatitude, and it's just a line, and you go, blessed are the meek, for they they shall inherit the earth. You go, well, that's good. Let's define it. But what defining it doesn't do is show us how it's developed in us how it grows up in us, so that, like Galatians 5, that the fruit of meekness would grow up in our life and blossom like fruit on a fruit tree. And I don't know if you've ever seen a fruit tree, like an apple orchard. Uh, We were in California in the fall, and we had a little incident, maybe a little car sickness in the car, and had to do a little pullover and a little cleanup on aisle, you know, middle row. And we pulled up right next to an orange tree or orange vineyard. I don't know if that's what you call it or not. It was oranges everywhere. And, and my wife kept me honest. I'm like, let's just grab an orange. How cool would that be? And she's like, it's not your orange. I go, integrity. You know, it's what you do when no one else is watching. And so I didn't grab an orange, even one on the ground. I left them alone. 
But I'm sitting there, and when you go to an orange tree, if you're very, very quiet and very, very still, you learn how oranges grow on trees. Be quiet, you can listen. Grow! <laughs> By intense effort. And that's not true. Fruit doesn't grow on trees by intense effort. It grows on trees by being cultivated in the right conditions, right? And we spend our whole lives going, be meek, be humble, bear fruit. And it doesn't work and we're exhausted and we're disappointed in ourselves and in our spiritual lives because we can't bear fruit. But our job to bear fruit is our job to be planted in good soil and to sit in the nourishment of all that God gives, and the Holy Spirit is the one who then bears fruit in our life. And so I want to show you what it takes for meekness to become a characteristic from within that shows out in your life. Turn to Psalm 37 in your Bible. Psalm 37 in the middle of your Bible. You may have known, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You may have memorized it. What might surprise you is that Jesus was quoting or directly alluding to an Old Testament psalm in Psalm 37. And this psalm, uh, I'll read to you verse 11 in just a second, but this psalm gives us the path or the conditions in which meekness grows up in our life. Here's Psalm 37 verse 11 next to our beatitude today. Psalm 37 verse 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Do you see that? And in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the words that are translated for earth and land, they're both interchangeable here. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth or the land, and, but the meek shall inherit the land or the earth and be blessed because they're delighting in the abundant peace of God. Do you see it's, it's the same thing here? And what is here begins to give us an, an, an elaborated definition of what it means to be meek and a picture of what it looks like. But the bottom line, what does it matter and what does it look like? How does this show itself out when I'm at work during the week and maybe I'm the only Christian on my street? Or how does this show itself up when my life is lived online where I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood or in my class or on my basketball team? How does meekness demonstrate itself in those situations or when I'm in management and there's expectations by corporate headquarters on me to carry out certain functions? How does meekness you know, characterize all of my interactions with those who work for me, around me, under me, and above me? How does meekness show itself as the political ads and text messages? I don't know how to make those stop, by the way, if you're asking. I don't know how to make the text messages stop. But as the political ads are coming and all of us are getting uneasy and we're dreading what a mess we're going to make over the next eight months in this country because everyone's going to be fighting to have things go their way, how does meekness mark our lives in the midst of all of these things in the world. And this psalm is going to do two things. It's going to show us first in verse one what gets in the way of our meekness, the major things we trip over. And then it's going to begin to show us how to grow, how meekness will grow in our life. So look at verse one. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers, be not envious toward wrongdoers. And I read this this week and I just said, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything else because I realized how often this is how we live our lives. How many of us have done this this week? Do not fret because of evildoers. And why? 
maybe it's because you see something wrong, some evil growing in culture, or you see like things that we thought were good are eroding, and we're in fear, we're like desperate. How do we get it back? Or we feel like we should have a certain right, but it's not working, or we see a path of trouble, and it's bothering us. And the word fret here actually means to burn with anger. It doesn't mean to cower in fear. It means to be incensed, to be controlled by your anger. And David's message here is when you see there is evil in the world, when you see there's injustice, when you see things doing wrong and evil winning, you should care. You should, you should really be bothered deep at your core. But remember we looked at this in Ephesians 4 just a few weeks ago. We said, be angry, but do not sin. Remember that? Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the devil get a foothold. David's saying the same thing. He says, it should bother you deep at your core when you see injustice and brokenness and sin in this world. You should, what Patrick said last week, mourn over sin, but you should cool down and stay cool, right? Don't fret. Don't be incensed. Don't let your anger take over and lead you in your actions because of evildoers. And then he follows it and says, be not envious toward wrongdoers. And this one's really hard. And if you say, no, I mean, I don't deal with that. Envious of wrongdoers, that just sounds silly. Like, you're not telling the truth or you're not thinking through it clearly. Like, this is a massive struggle in my life. I go, Lord, I'm really trying to walk in your ways. I am. I mean, I'm trying to honor you with my lips and with my life. I'm trying to do the things you call me to do. I'm just trying to be faithful, not perfect at it, obviously screwing up every day, but I'm trying. The effort is there, God. How come I'm always on my back foot and things keep coming up in my life that I didn't expect and it's beating me down? And this guy, this joker over here who doesn't care at all what you want and what, what you love and what you're calling him to, he's running like crazy and he's winning all the time. Everything in his life is going right. He's being celebrated, and he does whatever he wants to do. In me, I'm trying, God, to be faithful. And something in me goes, why can't my life just go more like that? This is what David means by don't be envious toward wrongdoers. Do you ever feel that in your life? I'm called to live in a manner worthy of the calling, and yet I don't feel like I'm winning. I want, to, want you to remember this. A Christian, here's a definition of a Christian in a fallen world. A Christian is a person who is behind enemy lines in a fallen world who is surrounded by darkness and it's going all, all times, it's going in the opposite way of God. That's what it looks like to be a Christian in this fallen world. It's a person who's behind enemy lines in a fallen world surrounded by darkness that's always going in the opposite way of God. And by God's design, you and I are here behind enemy lines, surrounded by darkness in a world that's going the opposite way of God. So that by our presence here and by his presence in us and with us, his kindness, his character, his meekness, his beauty, his joy that would reign in our life in the midst of a fallen world when things aren't even going our way would be winsome and would draw people in. Prosperity gospel teachers will tell you, God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That way, when people outside the faith look at your life and see how great it is, they'll go, oh, I should worship Jesus too. What happens then is people are always seeking the gift and not the giver. Do you see that? That's what's wrong with the prosperity gospel. It's about the gift and not the giver, and there's no truth, there's no promise in that. Here, what we're finding is instead 
in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of evil, and behind enemy lines, when we have from within us an inner transformation that has joy and peace and goodness about us, even when things are not moving in our direction, even when we're not the ones in power, the watching world would go, what is going on in their life? How can they be like that? So David says, don't fret and don't be envious toward evildoers. I wish I could tell you that the church has always done this well. You know, like Acts 2, 47, and the church found favor among the people favor among the people. The Lord is adding to the number daily those who are being saved. I wish that that's just how it always was, but it's not. And it's not, I think, sometimes because we're afraid that we're losing ground or because we're conflicted or we're discouraged because it's harder walking in God's ways and not easier going with the flow, right? And we're concerned, we're afraid that things are getting worse, not better. And we go, but I I don't understand. If you read your Bible, you know things do get worse (laughs) before Jesus comes back. So you shouldn't be surprised by that at all. It's here for us. But because of those things, our, our hearts begin to turn. And that which God has planted in us gets overwhelmed by fret and envy. And if we allow those things to reign in our heart, we'll never experience meekness power and the beauty and the promise and the blessing that comes with it because we cannot hold simultaneously within ourselves destructive power and freedom in Christ. And so we've got to find a way out of fret and envy and into true meekness. And David is going to tell us what that looks like. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, this is how you do it. You trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Trust in the Lord. Do you trust in the Lord? Do you trust in God? You know, I love how David connects this. He he says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land. It makes me think about Jeremiah 29. Do you remember God's people in Jeremiah 29? Their home had been ransacked. Their children, Psalm says their babies were thrown on hard rocks. This is a destruction of their people that was taking place. And all of the powerful, all of the wealthy, all of the influential were dragged out of their homeland and dragged to Babylon where they were living their life on the outskirts of town because they didn't want to move into Babylon. The evil Babylonians are there and we don't want to mix and we don't want to be anywhere with them. And into that, God sends his message to the prophet Jeremiah and says, listen, you're not there because you're weak. You're there because I placed you there. I put you there on purpose, and here's what I want you to do there. I want you to plant gardens, to build homes, to have children and have your children grow up and marry and have children. You're going to be there for multiple generations, and I want you while you're there to seek the shalom of the city (laughs) so that one day when someone looks around and says, why is there this, this different kind of thing happening in Babylon? There are these people. And inherently, there's something that drives them, and it's counter to everything that is Babylonian. Why is it? And they'd say, well, it's something about the people of God. When they arrived, something started happening and changing. And I look at this, and David says, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land. Because Christianity isn't this pie-in-the-sky kind of thing where we just have good thoughts and we fly above real life. He says, no, trust in the Lord while you're dwelling, while you're immersed in the land, and do good. Do you trust in the Lord? 
Do you trust him when you're the only Christian at work? Do you trust him when your boss says, this is how you have to manage that account, and yet you know there's some things about it that don't hold water, that, that, that are not in, you know, integral with your faith and your dependence on Christ? Do you trust the Lord when you are the only Christian on your team or in your class, and you go, there's a way that I should live, and, and it, it's not popular, and it's going to be weird? Do you trust the Lord when there are two candidates, and you go, well, I think it's all awful. You know, what do I do here? Do you trust the Lord? Or at that moment, do you go, well, maybe he's not as sovereign as I thought? Do you trust him? And David says after that, he says, delight yourself in the Lord. Don't just trust him, but delight in him. Do you delight in the Lord? Like, before you know Jesus, people don't think a lot about God, and they certainly aren't satisfied by him. But when they encounter Christ, and they find his kindness, and they find it's his kindness that leads them to repentance, and they become overwhelmed by his goodness of taste and see our God is good, they begin to find that God is their only thing. He's the only thing that matters. And if I had God and nothing else, I'd have what? I'd have everything. You know, I'd inherit the earth if God is my God and I have him. Do you, when you think about the Lord, think about pleasure and joy and delight? Or is it something else that, that characterizes your mind when you think about the Lord? Do you delight yourself in the Lord? David says, you want the path to freedom and blessing and joy in the midst of anything life hands you? Delight in the Lord. Let the joy of the Lord overwhelm you. Let it be your strength. And in verse five, he says, commit your way to the Lord. The Hebrew word for commit, it's kind of a strange word. It means to roll it all up. I think a lot of times what we do is we peace out our life, and we go, God, I'm going to give you this, but this is mine. I'm going to, I'm going to let you have this in control of that, kind of, unless I don't like what you're saying about it, and then I might take it back. What David says is take all of your burdens, all of your boxes of burdens, all of your baggage, all of your relationships, all of your opportunities, all of your responsibilities, all the things that are filling your mind, all the things that are filling your heart, just roll them all up and hand them to God. That's your way rolled into his way. Is your way committed to God? And it's easy, I think, for us to go, yeah, I'm committed to God, I'm committed to God. But like honest evaluation of your life and you go, am I holding back at all? Because if I hold back, Jesus isn't my king. If I, if I hold on to 1% and I give him 99, I still am king because I've decided what 1% is mine, right? He's not my king until I've committed my way to him and entrusted it to him. Then David says this, I love this. He says, trust in him and he will Act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Question, do you believe God will bless his people? Because life is really telling us he won't make good on his promises a lot of days. Do you really believe he will act? Do you really believe he will bring forth justice as the noonday? Do you really believe, are these just songs and scriptures that we say aloud, but deep down, they're really not powerful in our life? They're just things that come from our lips, but they haven't captured our hearts. Have we forgotten Romans 8, 18, which says, no matter what amount of suffering you may experience in this life, it is nothing compared to the surpassing glory for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. It's like nothing. It's not like, oh, this weighs this much and the glory will weigh a little more it's like nothing compared to the glory that's in store for all of God's children. And life beats it out of us sometimes, and we become weary and heavy laden with boxes of burdens. And sometimes we begin to lose hope. That's why 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, 
God isn't slow about keeping his promises, as some count slowness. He's patient. And why is he patient? Because he's making room for more to come in and experience his grace. And you and I might wait a while for some of those blessings to come in their fullness, but it's good because our family is growing while we wait. Right? Do you believe God will bless his people? And then one more thing he says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Are you ever still before God? Meekness grows in stillness. You remember Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Remember that verse? I want to read over you the context of be still and know that I'm God. And I want to ask you if you'd do this with me. If you just close your eyes for a moment, I want you to sit in this context where the Assyrian army is besieging God's people and they're taking up arms to go to war. And it's so easy to fight battles, whether they're physical battles or spiritual battles. And we're all in spiritual battles every day. The Bible tells us that. It's so easy to fight those battles in the power of our strength. And the more we do, the more we forget how our God is with us and how he is for us. And so we have Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear. Here's a comparison. The nations made an uproar and kingdoms tottered. And our God, he raised his voice and the whole earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bows, cuts the spears in two. He burns chariots down with fire. So stop trying so hard in your strength to fight the battles of culture and the battles for your soul and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. God says, I will be exalted among the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is a call for people who are behind enemy lines, who are surrounded by darkness and everything seems to be going the other way to stop fighting in their strength, to not put your attention on what is going wrong and fret and envy, but instead to stop fighting for a moment and look up to your God, to his presence with you, to his greater glory and power and sovereignty, that he is never shaking and he is never out of control, that his eye is always on his children Jesus made good on his promise. He would never leave us or forsake us because he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to bring us his comfort, to bring us his strength, to do things in us that we could never do on our own. He says, stop scrapping, stop fighting in your strength and start trusting. Roll it all into him, delight in him, and watch what he bears in your life. You can open your eyes. When's the last time that you encountered somebody who is truly biblically meek? Think about that. Someone who almost astounded you because you knew what power they had. And they held back, and they didn't hold back out of fear. They held back because it was good. Let me flip that around. 
Can you think of a time recently where you saw someone have power out of control? It went off the rails. Can you think about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that, where you've received power out of control, power that hasn't been surrendered to the Lord's control, and it just is squashing. It's a spouse who is, you know, always bagging on you, telling you how awful you are. It's a boss who's manipulative. It's a coach who's intimidating. Think about how it feels when you're on the receiving end. Do you move towards that person, or do you do everything in your power to move away from that person? You move away. I wish I could say the church has always done well in its relationship with the broken and fallen world, that we, we lean in with meekness and we put our grace foot forward and we put kindness on display and we find favor among the people, but we're not, we're, we're not always like that. And when power is out of control, damage is done. And unfortunately, that's becoming too much the reputation of the church. Maybe it's because we're afraid. Maybe it's because we envy. Maybe it's because we're angry. But the reputation isn't of meekness. It's a fighting for control. What if we, as a church, said, it stops here? You know, because I trust in the Lord. I really do. I trust in his sovereignty, even when it doesn't look like it makes sense right now. I, I trust that he's with me and he's for me and he's working through me. And maybe by embodying the character of Jesus and living his meekness, maybe by that, he will change a life. One, two. Not by me grabbing at power, but by me laying down with power to hold up. What if we just committed to that today? That's the thing that we want most. I want to end like this. I'm going to put a prayer on the screen, and I'm going to have a prompt, a part that's underlined. And I want to invite you for just a moment to make that part very, very specific and very, very personal for you. Take a look at this prayer real quick. It says, God, would you help me to place my power under your control in that moment when my pride or my authority or, or what I think is right is challenged in this world? And I want you to take just a moment, if you bow your heads, I want you to consider very specifically in your life where you're living now and the situations you're in, where you find that challenge in your life, where it feels like you're beginning to lash out, you're beginning to fret or envy. God, would you help me to place my power under your control at that moment when? Take just a moment where you're sitting and consider how you fill in that blank and ask God's help. Think about those relationships. They're so tough. And when you see that person and all that they represent in your life, an anger rises up or a bitterness or a disappointment. Holy Spirit, would you help me to place my power under your control? In that moment, would you remind me of being poor in spirit 
and that it's with empty hands that aren't trying to earn or prove, but hands that are ready to receive from you that I experience blessing and enter the kingdom. Would you remind me to mourn over sin, to grieve it deep within me, not to gloss over it, my own sin and the brokenness in the world, that I'd feel it. I love the things you love. I'd hate the things you hate, but I would never rise up and join in sin. Jesus, when you talk to us about the log and the speck, it's interesting that both the log and the speck of sawdust are made of the same substance. (laughs) Help us not to turn to sin and our natural human impulses and embarrass you and defame you and undermine your kindness and meekness by our foolishness and pride. And I suppose it's most important in this moment that we just say thank you, Jesus. That in all of our weakness, in all of our burden, in all of our brokenness that you came, you left glory. (laughs) You had no pain. And you entered the earth and you made yourself one of us and you experienced pain and you experienced hunger and you experienced temptation and yet you did what none could do. You remained righteous and pure. And it's your kindness and your meekness and your gentleness that just welcomes us in to know that we're safe with you. And that's the reason we glorify you. That's the reason we come to you. That's the reason we trust you. That's the reason we want to live with you. And that's the reason we long for the day that you return. Make our hearts beat for that day and help us to walk in your way until that very moment. In Jesus' name, amen.